0: This is John Mulder, Executive Director of the Trillium Institute, along with Jason Beckrow, welcoming you to Palliative Matters. We are palliative docs who treat patients and families who are dealing with difficult medical circumstances. And we'd like to share with you what we have learned along this journey. So, how are you doing today, Jay? Fantastic. Always a pleasure to be with you, John, and talk about these deep and meaningful topics. Yeah, I love the conversations. I, I, you know, I hope that uh, others uh, uh, gain as much as, uh, as, as we do personally, because uh, I know that every time we finish one of these, I pause to reflect and say, hmm, yeah. One of the things that I've been reflecting on is a topic that we touch on, and we probably mention the word in every podcast we do, and it probably is worthwhile diving down a little deeper into exactly what we mean and what the term is when we refer to suffering. Hmm. Clearly, we've all had experiences where we perceive that we have been suffering. We have all observed individuals who we would interpret as suffering. But really, what is it and what does it really mean? I'm going to just toss it over to you to kind of throw out some some ideas uh, through, through your experience.
1: John, uh, another great topic. And again, one we could probably do several seminars or, um, you know, really doing a deep dive. The, the, the concept of suffering is something I, I've actually thought a lot about through my career. And I remember having kind of a light bulb moment early in my training. I was in fellowship and reading Eric Cassell's The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine. Oh, yeah. And for the first time, I think. Classic. Yeah. A copy of it hangs on my uh, bulletin board in my office, and I give it to most of the students who come through my office. And they look at it, and at first I'm like, hey, this is, you know, it's almost as old as I am, uh, um, but it's uh, certainly uh, older than the students I'm currently teaching. Um, But when, as you say, a classic, it, it, um, it holds up over time. But what I took away from that, was the fact that in medical school we know, we're taught a lot about pain physical pain the the neural pathways and how to combat pain uh, but dr cassell talks about suffering and contrasted to physical pain and the multifactorial origins of suffering uh, the emotional the spiritual the existential and you know when i think about that existential it's not just you know am i going to die but but Suffering is when any part of your sense of self or, or your wellness is, is being impacted. And so over the years, when I think about existential suffering, I'll think about things like cancer patients coming into my office and they're, they're facing you know, life-limiting disease. You know, existential crises can come in financial forms, professional, familial relationships. I remember early in my career... Um, a patient with uh, newly diagnosed lung cancer and we are planning out a treatment plan of chemotherapy and was asking me a lot of financial questions, essentially, how much is this going to cost? And I remember my naive answer at the time was, don't worry about the money. I quickly realized this man was very open and forthright with me when he said, you know, I would rather die than bankrupt my family. And I thought about that. Well, I've been thinking about that for decades since uh, it was first brought to my attention. But part of his suffering was this gentleman had uh, raised a family. He had been a financial provider, and now that was being threatened. And so in addition to dealing with a metastatic cancer, he's dealing with this as well. And, And again, it's just an example of the multitude of items that our patients may be dealing with um, that we'd be wise to kind of clue into. John, I'm sure you've had similar experiences in your career as well.
0: Well, sure. They, you know, when, when we think about what it is that, that causes suffering, you, you gave a great example of um, what this gentleman was no longer going to be able to do for his family uh, was, was agonizing to him, and he interpreted mm-hmm. that as suffering. And I think that uh, there are really a couple of different ways to look at that. When we no longer have the opportunity to do what we hold sacred, we're going to probably interpret some element of suffering that might be from disease, it might be from pandemic related you know isolation. Yeah. how many elderly do we have in nursing homes uh, you know who through the pandemic you know couldn't see family, couldn't see friends and even though they physically may not have had any change in a disease status, certainly would interpret some of their experience as suffering. And then uh, as with this gentleman, sometimes we interpret suffering as not being able to contribute in the way that we really expect or want to with our family or into society. You know, so often we interpret our worth and our value by what we do as opposed to who we are. And I think that part of our challenges in the work that we do with, uh, with our patient population is to continually reinforce that they are valuable for who they are and not necessarily by what they do. But that's a very easy and convenient trap to fall into, that if I can't do the things I wanted to do, that somehow life isn't worth living. And that then translates into suffering.
1: You, you bring up a really good point, and, and it's that concept of loss, you know, what could I do that now I can't. Um, and that could be, again, loss of physical function, providing for one's family. Uh, you made a great point. You know, a lot of us um, put a lot of our, our self worth and self identity in, in our, in our careers, our relationships and when those become disrupted for whatever reason. And the pandemic is a fascinating case study where, you know, the entirety of the world, uh, what the world looked like on, say, maybe around March 1st last year and what it looked like on March 15th were, were very different. And so that concept of loss. And, again, as doctors, were trained to focus on how illness and, and, and pathology affects loss and whatnot. But then again, to kind of clue into that, to see the multifocal aspects of suffering. And, you know, something we, we, I think about is, is, can a person be painful without suffering? And I would offer up the case of, um, I, I, I have children. I've never delivered a baby, but uh, my wife, and I always say, if she was ever going to leave me, it would be for the anesthesiologist who gave her her epidural, which made it a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> But um, still, so um, she was fairly uncomfortable. But because you know what's coming, and it's not a sense of loss, it's a sense of gain, that becomes kind of a sacrificial pain. And we see this in various um, spiritual traditions where people will have physical pain or symptoms, but they see it as part or it has meaning, and thus it's, it's not as much related to suffering. And then flip that around, can a person have no pain, physical pain, Yet yeah, be suffering. Clearly in a world of pandemic and isolation and distance, where, where depression and anxieties and things are building, I think that's a classic example of where one can really, in the absence of physical pain, be experiencing a great amount of suffering. And we see that all the time in our, in our patients. Well, let's face it, you know, we, we always talk about we do this for our patients, but don't we see that in our own lives as well?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I I think that, you know, what you point out is the the reality that, you know, we studied neural pathways. When tissue is damaged, we can map out the the pathways of nerves that, that translate that tissue injury through the relevant neural connections up the spinal cord into the central nervous system. And the brain says, you have something broken, and I'm going to make a signal of pain to alert you to the fact that something's wrong our cerebral cortex further can modify that pain and interpret it as suffering. So the the cerebral cortex, I think, is is really important in terms of that interpretation of pain or a circumstance that results in suffering. I had an uncle who, uh, as a result of encephalitis as a a toddler, was uh, cognitively impaired the rest of his life. But one of the things that it also did was it took away... His ability to sense pain, physical pain, oh. so he had cancer, he had uh, bowel obstruction, in one case he was uh, was hit by a car, fractured both legs, ribs bleeding into his chest cavity, and a skull fracture and I got a call from the doc in the ER who was just amazed because he was lying there talking to him as if nothing were wrong. oh my goodness, because he had no capacity to feel the physical pain so you know, in that particular case, was he suffering? No, he wasn't suffering. He just you know something doesn't look right you know, <laughs> but he wasn't feeling the pain uh, but conversely, our cerebral cortex can interpret our circumstance as suffering, and you can look at at teenagers take a 14 year old or a 15 year old who has a flirtatious infatuation that that suddenly goes away and for them it is the worst thing in their life that's ever happened their level of perceived suffering is immense because of the way that their cerebral cortex interprets that particular circumstance mm-hmm. and again it relates somewhat to to hope that we've talked about in other podcasts, but it it really has to do with how our brain interprets that situation, circumstance, physical, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise. Yeah. I think again, how the concept of hope, and again, as we talked before, hope versus
1: hopeless, when a person is experiencing a sense of loss, if there's hope for either regaining the loss, or at least tilting it in that positive direction, uh, then there's hope. And when there's the the inability to see a future state where that loss is remedied leading to the hopeless and how the two go so hand-in-hand, again, with suffering uh, and, again, physical and non-physical
0: manifestations of symptoms that we see routinely. I think that one of the things that then for the physicians that listen to this, what is really critical is that we make sure that we understand the distinction between pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. is so often it's very, very easy for us. Someone comes in, um, let's say they have cancer, they've got you know, metastatic disease to the ribs, they've got pain. Absolutely, I can write that prescription and know that their physical pain will be better. That'll take me 10 minutes or less and they can be out the door. But have we really addressed the full extent of the pain? Have we really examined the extent of suffering that may be going along with that? That's why we teach empathy. That's why we we work with students and physicians to, to understand that it's much deeper than the tissue damage. We have our next topic, perhaps, of discussion because we've seen that all the
1: time, right? Again, if one is not feeling hopeful, if they are extremely suffering, sometimes no amount of analgesic will make that pain go away. But if one can see a future that is better Um, sometimes we see improvement with a fraction of the medication, specifically the analgesic. And again, the, the two go so hand in hand. And again, I just, you know, part of the reason I love this uh, discussion with you is we think of situations where we've seen that in our practice. And as we think about, you know, teaching our colleagues and especially our, our colleagues in training now to see the value in doing that, uh, the physical and the non-physical.
0: Yeah. I, I remember uh, just one circumstance and, and I kind of close with this. There was a, a a young physician who had cancer and was dying and came into the hospital with uh, significant pain. We pulled out all the stops, not because he was a physician, but because he had such severe pain, which seemed to line up to his disease process. So I did the things that we typically do for someone that has severe cancer-related pain and it didn't work. So I cranked it up a notch. It started with uh, you know, opioid infusions and then it continued with um, adjuvant therapy uh, that didn't work. We tried uh, even the extent of epidural and intrathecal therapies that we thought would help and nothing nothing really helped until we began addressing the peripheral issues, what does it mean for him to recognize that he's got something that his profession can't fix? What is the implications on his family? He's trained for a dozen years or more through college and medical school and residency and now is, is into his practice and just getting established. He's got patients who depend on him. He's got a family and three young children who depend on him. And all of a sudden he's not going to be a part of that experience of his kids or his practice professionally, personally, everything is devastated. This guy was suffering. And it's, it's not that we were oblivious to that, but our automaticity says, I'm going to treat what I see. That is pain. And I think that the opportunity to reflect on how does this particular disease or symptom impact our patients in totality, we have opportunities to help people with their suffering, not just with their pain. And so I hope that's, uh, that, that, that's a takeaway that people will, will understand and appreciate. Wonderfully said, John. Wonderfully said. Well, thanks again for joining us uh, for Palliative Matters. We appreciate your uh, listening in and uh, invite you to look for other topics on the webpage. Thanks again, Jay, and we'll look forward to the next time. Pleasure. Have a good day, John.